And like, uh, I'll start by saying my name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic. And my sobriety date is February 21st of 1997. And when I first came here, people were doing that. It was on the tail end. But before anybody shared, they'd always give their sobriety date. And it wasn't to like establish some kind of hierarchy in here of like who had been sober the longest. It was simply to show that this thing could work for people for years, months, days, and hours. That this thing, bottom line, that it works. And I was looking at that point for something that worked because everything I had tried on my own had ended up in failure. And like uh, I could like stop drinking. And I knew that I needed to because my life had exploded. Uh, I knew I needed to stop drinking, but like uh, I could stop but not stay stopped. And that like I would like uh, stop for maybe 30 days. A lot of times I would cheat on that when my wife was still living with me. It's like uh, 30 days of not drinking meant 30 days of not getting caught. And like, uh, but like, uh, even if I did actually make 30 days, I was aware of it completely. That's all I thought about was uh, I'm not drinking, I'm not drinking. And like, uh, you know, and if I made that 30 days, like what I would do as a reward was, my reward for not drinking was to drink. And that is the definition of insanity. So I came here on a Friday night to a speaker night like this one. And uh, somebody had sort of like uh, uh, coaxed me into coming over here. Uh, They didn't even tell me that it was AA. They said that like there was a place over on Bolden that like uh, I could get some help. You know, that there were people there that would help me. And I was a little bit confused because I hadn't asked this person for help, but he obviously thought that I needed help. And he told me about this place. He told me exactly how to get here. He told me at that time we were parking down in the auditorium parking lot, this Palmer Auditorium. He told me to park down there, to walk up the hill. There'd be a church that I would pass. And once I passed that church, there was this little house. And that's where the people were that could help me. And he said that I didn't have to say anything, that somebody would be telling their story. And like, uh, I just have to sit there and listen to the story. And it's at the, at the end of like the meeting, they give out these little coins. And the last one they give out is a little silver coin. And he told me to get up and get one. So he gave me all these instructions and I told him I would do it. And then Friday came around and I didn't do it. I came up with something else that I needed to do. So I knew this guy from what I was doing. I was doing art shows around the country, country and I was seeing him down in Florida and I was talking to him, crying the blues about my life, drunk. And so, like, the next time we got back to Austin from Florida, he called me up again and again told me about this place like he'd never told me the same thing before. <laughs> and uh, that night, Friday night before I came over here on the 21st, uh, I decided I was going to do my income taxes. And you have to remember that, like, uh, I never did my income taxes till like, the August final deadline. But that night I was going to do my income taxes. And he called me up and gave me a little shove, and he said, get your ass over there. So I came over here, and, uh, you know, I'm sort of ahead of myself, but I do want to tell, like, uh, what happened and what it's like now. A lot of times I listen to these uh, speaker meetings, and the last five minutes is like sobriety. But, like, I want to devote a little bit more time to that than I have in the past, uh, you know. But I love drunkologues. That was one of the things. Since I, when I came here, that was one of the things that attracted me was the drunkologues, and I loved hearing them. But, like, uh, to go back to my origins is, like, uh, I was born in 1947 after World War II, and I was at the front end of the baby boom, what they call the baby boomers. And what that was was that all these men had been fighting in World War II 
And they came back uh, from the war, and they got married and uh, started fucking like rabbits and spitting out all these children. It just was like a, a boom. I mean, here they were, all these kids. And it started in 1946, and I was like the next year in 47. And like uh, what it, we all had kind of in common, not everybody was, that we had parents that had lived through the Great Depression, which was poverty, and then gotten into this war that was the biggest event of like all time up to that point. In fact, for years, we just if you talked about the war, you knew that it was like World War II. And so they had been deprived. They lived deprived lives. And so they, like uh, with their children, they wanted their children to have everything they didn't have. And as a result, it was this huge, horribly spoiled generation of people. And I was one of those people. Plus, I was an only child. So early on, I developed uh, a view of myself as being the center of the universe, you know, that I was the center of the universe. And one of the things was about my parents is, it's like I hear people talking in here sometimes about being horribly abused or mistreated as children, uh, my only child abuse was I was given everything that I wanted. And like, uh, and it gave me a very warped perspective on life. But the thing that I didn't like that I was forced to do was uh, my parents were deeply religious people. It's like they belonged to that church over there. Not that particular one, but the denomination. Uh, it was a church of Christ. It was an incredibly fundamentalist Christian religion. It's like a social drinking was not recognized. It was total abstinence. You were told never to drink. I never saw my mother and dad take a drink their entire lives. I don't think my mother ever did. I think my dad uh, did drink a little bit before, but he was scared of it because I found out in sobriety one of the reasons he was scared about it was uh, that his grandfather was the town drunk in this South Dakota town he grew up in, and he was ridiculed as a child for it. But like once he married my mother, he never took a drink, and she didn't either. We had no alcohol in the house except for a, uh, a bottle of Mogan David wine, Concord grape. And I remember sneaking up there. She had it there for like fruitcakes, and she was really embarrassed about having she hid it away and she'd make these incredible fruitcakes and that was one of the key ingredients and I remember tasting that stuff and I thought why in the world would anybody drink this it tastes like crap and I remember as uh, uh, also this my next door neighbor like we found a can of beer she and I and we tried to drink it and it tasted like shit and then like I had another best friend that like uh, his mother kept a bottle of whiskey in her uh, cabinet that she used for medicinal purposes. A lot of times people looked at that as, as like a, some kind of stimulant or whatever. She was not a, a drinker and she wasn't an alcoholic. And whiskey tasted worse. And like uh, I never could figure out why people drank like that. And we didn't have people drinking in our home. We weren't around people that drank. And like uh, occasionally we would go out and you'd see somebody in a restaurant. The town I lived in was dry. They didn't sell alcohol, but the town next to us did. And I'd see people drunk, and they were kind of scary. It's like uh, they were kind of out of control and, and like, loud, and uh, you, you didn't know what they were going to do. And, like, uh, uh, so I grew up with the whole idea that, like, alcohol was not going to be any part of my picture in life. And uh, it was mostly that way. But the other thing was this religion thing, I hated it. It's like as devout as they were and how much they enjoyed it. Uh, I despised it. I, I know in church, like, uh, the only theological concept I ever got 
was eternity, which was the length it took for the preacher to get through his sermon so I could go home and eat Sunday dinner. And like I, I would do, my, my, I remember my mom let me take a little toy with me so that I could play with a toy while that was going on. And like uh, it, was, it was something I never liked. And what I liked was occasionally on a Sunday, uh, my parents had these friends that weren't as devout as they were. We'd go out. I grew up in North Texas in Sherman. We would go out to the lake or we'd go into Oklahoma to a park. And that's like what I enjoyed doing on a Sunday. But like uh, the whole time, I never got the message of like the church. Uh, like it was very austere. It was very the uh, literalist interpretation of the Bible. And uh, it was it was so uptight. We looked down on the Baptists as being hedonist because like uh, they had a piano and we didn't, you know, because Jesus didn't play a piano in the New Testament, so we couldn't have one in our church. And uh, so like the music w- wasn't any good either, you know. And like uh, so, I grew up that way. And it, I remember at a certain point, I think I was about twelve years or thirteen years old, and there were all these kind of like crime shows and juvenile delinquent movies going around and like uh, I wanted to be a juvenile delinquent I remember trying to get my dad to let me buy a switchblade knife and uh, he wouldn't let me buy a switchblade and you could buy them legally at that time and like uh, it's like uh, I had like uh, had some I didn't never got arrested never got in really scrapes but like uh, my dad at one point took me and like uh, over to a boy scout meeting at North Park Baptist Church and set me down in a chair and said, you're going to be a Boy Scout. And I didn't want to do it. But what happened was I ended up enjoying it because you could go out camping and you could go out to the outdoors and learn to do all these things. And I actually ended up being like an Eagle Scout. And like uh, I had the God and Country Award and I was kind of an atheist even as a kid. But like uh, it was like uh, it was a way to like like get out into nature, which became later as something that I could identify as a higher power. And so I got into Boy Scouts and, like, uh, went through high school and, like, uh, uh, never drank up until the first time I ever got the effect of alcohol was on, um, it was May 29th of 1964, and it was the last day of classes. They had a thing, like, I was graduating from high school, they had what was called Senior Assembly, and, uh, like, uh, they played hell to the Bearcats, and all the seniors walked out, and most people went up to Lake Texoma, which is where everybody went up, to, like, go swimming and partying. And I went with a couple of guys that, like, uh, were not going to drink. One was a guy from my church. And we went up there to the lake and, like, uh, ran into these people that I didn't know near as well as the people I was with, and they had two, like, uh, coolers full of beer that, like, uh, uh, they had brought up there, and they offered me a beer. And so I took a beer. Is back in the days they had what's called church keys. You had to open them with this opener. And uh, I didn't like the taste, but I just started sipping it. And I started sipping it like a motherfucker. It's like I was just... Get, and I got down one and I got down two. And with that second beer, I started getting the effect of alcohol. And a biblical reference from my growing up, it was like... Uh, the Apostle Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was like, where has this been all my life? You know, <laughs> this is why people drink this shit. You know, it's like like uh, the, the effect of alcohol was like like a spiritual experience for me, and that set me off. Well, I was like uh, graduated from high school. I went to summer school that summer at Abilene Christian College in Abilene, Texas, and like. Uh, uh, this place was like 
Equally austere, it was always determined that I was going to go to Abilene Christian College because, like, if you went to a state school, we were told if you went to a state school, your child was, like, likely to become an atheist. So I went to Abilene Christian College and became an atheist. It was like uh, uh, I went there that summer, and, like, it was the summer of 1964, and, like, uh, a thing happened called the Gulf of Tonkin uh, incident happened, where supposedly it turned out it really didn't happen. Uh, U.S. ships were attacked by the Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese Navy. And the war in Vietnam was, like, uh, in full flow at that point. It had been going on with Kennedy before that, but once that happened, uh, everybody was, like, getting drafted to go over there, and I didn't want to be drafted. And if you went to Abilene Christian College and you got caught drinking, they would expel you from school because I had that, like, uh, uh, happen with some friends of mine that, like, they got caught drinking and they got booted out of school and uh, lost their school deferment. You got a deferment for being in college. They lost that. And, like, uh, I didn't want that to happen to me. So what happened was I didn't drink uh, that summer or that that fall, but in the spring I had a friend that, like, uh, Grew up in Liberty Hill, which is now a suburb, but then it was back out in the country. And he had uh, relatives in Austin, and, like, he knew something about Austin. And so he said, like, uh, you know, they had this thing called Roundup that, like, we need to go to. And what Roundup was, it was kind of a spring homecoming where everybody got drunk in, like, uh, the University of Texas area. And so we drove from Abilene to, like, Austin and, like... uh, uh, we we slept in the car, and the next day, like, we got out, and I remember walking down the drag and just feeling this incredible feeling of freedom that was here in, in the town. It was like a vibe that you could probably feel that, like, I, I thought, man, this is an incredible place. And that night, like, uh, his cousin took us over to Fraternity Road, and, and we just rode, and we just picked out a frat house where, like, there were a whole lot of people like it, uh, it turns out to be the decals, uh, and like the decals, as it turned out, was kind of like the animal house of fraternities at that time. And so we went into this party uninvited, and like, uh, and nobody gave a shit. It was like uh, they were too busy getting drunk and having a good time. I remember they had a band, and the band was playing Louie Louie, and like uh, they had like eighteen kegs of beer, and like. Uh, uh, that was very impressive, and like I remember, like the only adult there was this uh, lady who was a house mother, and she was sitting there chain smoking cigarettes. And other than that, it was like these beautiful young women and, and men and whatever, and they were partying and they were getting drunk. And so we did with them. It's like uh, I remember in the old days they had these kegs that had seals on them, and they had a, a seal that had a tap, and you had to bust the tap with like. A, bust a seal with a tap and screw them down and the taps had quit working like at a certain point they I, don't, I guess just overworked they weren't working so I remember they were taking the taps and stabbing the like seals of like the kegs and like there'd be a huge geyser of beer that came up <laughs> that like we were all standing there with our cups and like just everybody was soaked in beer and some big burly guy got a keg and poured beer into everybody's cups and I look at that as my baptism into alcoholism. Like I got tremendously drunk and that was like where I made up my mind I'm going to pursue my education at the University of Texas. And so I came down here to go to school the next semester. And like, uh, I know the first time that I I came here, it's like uh, this friend of mine who was in a fraternity, 
like uh, from my hometown, like uh, called me up and said, you need to come over. He was trying to get me to pledge fraternity. And I wanted to be a beatnik, you know, but like uh, he said, yeah, but the thing about fraternities is you can drink with impunity and we have beer bust every weekend. So like he invited me the first night I was here, I was in this apartment with uh, three guys like I'd never met before that were going to share like a two bedroom apartment with. And like, uh, so uh, I got my car, drove over there and we went out to Low Water Bridge, which I think is still there. And they had a beer bust out there, and I remember some guy had something called Jaguar malt liquor, and I got tremendously drunk there so much that I came back and, like, uh, laid in my bed and threw up with, like, these four roommates that I'd never met before in my life. And I eventually, like, pledged a fraternity, not because of, like, the usual reasons of fellowship and establishing connections to the future, is that you could drink every weekend and not, like, have to suffer for it. The Liquor Control Board would not arrest you at these parties. They wouldn't come in and, under, and arrest underage drinkers uh, unless you stepped out in the street. You're always told at a party, if you're out in the front yard or whatever, don't step out to the street because they're out there and they might arrest you. So I could drink with impunity. And so, like, uh, I came down here and, like, uh, I was, uh, I changed my major from history to, like, English. And I was down here, like, my sophomore year, and then my junior year, uh, I got, like, accepted to the Honors English program at the University of Texas. And, like, uh, I went to classes for a few weeks, and by the end of the semester, I was out of school. It's like I had no grade point. I had zero, zero is what we used to call it. <laughs> had no hours. I had no grade point. Like, because <laughs> what I had done was is I had moved from the frat house. And the frat people, like, I was such a big drunk, they would like to gotten rid of me, but it required a two-thirds majority of the fraternity membership to kick somebody out, and over half the fraternity were alcoholics, so I was kind of safe there. But I got tired of it, and, like, and like so I moved into, like, uh, an apartment with this other guy, and it was just north of campus on, on Guadalupe, and, like, uh, drank every day. And what I would do is, there was a liquor store at the time, there's a Wendy's down there on like uh, 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 Martin Luther King where like uh, Guadalupe kind of takes a jag around it. And at the time it was called Charlie's Liquor Store. And I found out that you could call up Charlie and like uh, uh, order alcohol to be delivered over the the, uh, phone and then send this elderly gentleman out to like, uh, uh, I usually would order either one-fifth or two-fifths of Tvorsky gin. It was called TV gin. It was just cheap gin. It was the cheapest gin you could buy. And he would bring it to your house, take your money, and ask no questions. And so that's all I did all day was sit around and drink gin and listen to jazz and, like, uh, not go to class. So I was out, and, like, eventually I got back in school before I got drafted and graduated from college in my hometown. And, like, uh, at that place, uh, at that school, it was Austin College, and that's where I met my future wife. And the way I met her was... That like uh, I had met, uh, she was in my history class, and like I'd met her in the student union building uh, the Sunday before. The next Sunday, she came in uh, to the uh, student union building. I was sitting at a table, and she said it was my birthday, and I know what when it was. It was uh, September twenty seventh of like uh, nineteen sixty eight, uh, and that, that was her birthday, which is today. And like uh, she said, somebody gave me a bottle of scotch for my birthday. Would you like to kill it with me? And that was like love at first sight. Like uh, I, I went out with her. We took that like uh, 
fifth of scotch out on a country road and killed it. And like, and we proceeded to like uh, form a relationship that I ended up like uh, uh, engaged her. We got married like in August of 1969, which uh, it would have been 50 years this past August. August, and we moved back down here, and I was going to go to graduate school in English at the University of Texas, but by that time, drugs had entered the equation, too. I first smoked pot down here in 1966, and like uh, by that time, by 69, it was just all over the place, and so I got involved in like uh, pot and psychedelics, and I was here for the whole hippie thing in Austin, and a lot of people wish that they were born different times or different places, I'm, I, and live different times in different places. I would not change being down here in like Austin, Texas in the late 60s and early 70s for anything. It was like, uh, I mean, it was like smaller than it is now and like there was a thing called the scene. And you would see all these people at the scene, whether you knew them or not, they would like, things would happen. And like, uh, uh, there was a music scene here and like there was all this music. I, when I came down here, I saw Bob Dylan in 1965 right down there in the auditorium when he started this electric tour that took him through Europe and I saw Lightning Hopkins and like, uh, I remember I saw uh, Janis Joplin at a party. She came down here, Ken Threadgill, who Threadgill's is named after. They had a big birthday party at this party barn out by the Y and she flew in from Hawaii for it. And like, uh, I remember she sang like me and Bobby McGee before it ever came out on record and it didn't come out on record while she was alive because she died a couple of months after that party. And like, uh, you know, there was everything that was going on. There was just something happening here all the time. And all of it was just related to like alcohol and drugs. And like, uh, uh, it got to a point that my wife were doing, we're doing psychedelics almost every weekend. And we were living in a house. I remember at one point, the house, uh, this will give you an idea of how much things have changed here. We were living in a three bedroom house. And it was a church parsonage, like this place was a church parsonage, that the church was Baptist next door, I was renting out after they bought their preacher a new house. We were living there for $85 a month, all bills paid. <laughs> and like, uh, and we weren't supposed to have an air conditioner, we were putting one of those giant 220 units in there and like, uh, divide that anyway. And uh, we would every weekend or, or, or sometimes during the week drop acid, you know, and it was always this thing, you'd be like on Sunday morning, trying to crash out, you know, and get to sleep and come down from the acid and we'd look out the windows and there'd be all these Baptists coming to church in their crisp suits and little sundresses with girls and everything and we'd just feel wiped out, like let me die kind of a thing. But, you know, we're all a part of that. And like, uh, and, and the thing about like the 60s in Austin was it continues through the 70s here. The 70s were actually the best part of Austin. And like you could drive... Anywhere in town, and the smell of marijuana was in the air, you know. I remember when Kent State happened, it's like everybody went down to the main campus, down to the main mall, and it was just a cloud of marijuana smoke, you know, that was there. And I remember these guys from St. Ed's, they had this newspaper that they were dumping ounces of pot onto, rolling up, trying to make the world's biggest joint. And marijuana was $10 an ounce, and, like, you could buy a key for a couple hundred bucks, and, like... Uh, it was like, uh, this place was like a mecca. And it continued on through the 70s, but what happened was I, we had a child. And uh, the child like uh, is my son, Bob, who was born in 1979. And once we had the child, things changed. My wife had postpartum depression, and like she was a lot more responsible than I was. 
because I keep kept wanting to party on. And doing that, like, his period of time is that, like, uh, that's when my alcoholism really sprang in to, like, uh, affect my life. Uh, I was a pothead, mainly, in that, but when pot started going up from $10 an ounce, it started being, like, $50 an ounce. You know, I quit smoking it every day. It's like, uh, it's like I actually just quit buying it, but people would still turn me on to it. You know, I remember after our son was born, like, he was just a little toddler, and he toddled in in his diaper, and I had this little pipe at that point that I would use. You know, used to, everybody rode big big doobie joints, but I had this little pipe I had made that I smoked the pot in. And I didn't think my son knew what it was, and he saw me smoking that little pipe, and he went, smokey-dee-dope, smokey-dee-dope, and it kind of like uh, <laughs> made me feel bad, you know? So I quit smoking pot around him. And like, <laughs> and so anyway, it went on that like in the progression of our marriage is is it like uh, uh, I kept thinking I'll change. You know, it's like I was hiding alcohol from my wife. I worked in a shop. I was making art metal jewelry at that point, and like uh, I had all these places I could hide like beer and, and like I, I was drinking tequila, and I had my glasses in an enameling kiln. We did enameling. And, like, I, I would go out there sometimes and turn on the kiln and forget I had my glasses hidden inside the kiln and to get it up to 1,800, 1800 degrees, and I would open it up and there'd be all this melted glass in there. And I'd have to, like, let it cool down and, and uh, chisel it out of, like, the kiln. I did that more than once. And also the other thing I would do is there would be a certain point that I couldn't hide the bottles anymore. And so, like, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would take them in a... Uh, uh, a plastic bag and like uh, uh, throw them in a dumpster to 7-Eleven that was like close to my house and saying, that's it, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then I'd be back two or three weeks later throwing it into the dumpster again. And uh, there were other things that happened. It's like like uh, my marriage really deteriorated. My wife was very unhappy. And like uh, I remember one time like racing down Old Horse Street. I was drunk and stoned. And I was trying, probably trying to buy either pot or, or like alcohol. And I came down to Old Torf and South First Street. And like the light was green, and I figured I need to speed up if I'm going to make it. And I started speeding up, and just as I did, these four little Mexican American kids came running across the street in front of me. And I threw on my brakes, and like uh, I came skidding to a halt within like a couple of feet of these kids. And I could still see the look of that little boy, like uh, there's a horror and fright in his eyes. And I remember like uh, saying, I was just in a cold sweat. I was completely wet with sweat from that happening. I said, I'm done. That's it. Like, uh, uh, I'm not going to drink again. And a week later, I was drinking again. And I had a couple of other episodes like that where I would say I was done. Well, my wife was finally done, and she, like, uh, we got a divorce, and it was an acrimonious divorce. And, like, uh, it ended up, like, uh, she was gone, and I had done this thing of, like, uh, well, if you had my wife, you'd drink too. But then she was gone, and why was I still drinking if that was true? And why was I drinking more with her, like, uh, not there? And the reason was she wasn't there to nag me about it. I could do it. Uh, full tilt and like uh, my son was living with me it was sort of like he had a choice between an alcoholic and somebody that was bipolar so he chose the alcoholic and he lived with me and his pet nickname for me was alcoholic boy and like uh, I used to argue with him about it and like but usually my arguments were marred by the fact I was slurring my speech 
And like, uh, so at a certain point, like, uh, uh, this guy told me about this place. And like, it, it came, as I said, by me coming up to his stand there and leaving mine behind. I might be leaving ten or $20,000 worth of jewelry unattended to drunkenly talk to people at their stands. Bob and Jan Weaver, if you know them, they come here. I talk to them, too. And, like, uh, they, they used to do the same shows I did. And, like, uh, he told me about this place, so on a Friday night I came over here. And the only image I had of Alcoholics Anonymous was, like, a movie I'd seen called The Days of Wine and Roses. And, uh, God, they had this meeting in there that was, like, just a meeting from hell. It was like, it looked like a room full of Baltic potato farmers in cheap suits and like, uh, there wasn't even a smile in, in the room in that meeting. And like, uh, not any laughter whatsoever. And like, uh, so I thought that's what it was gonna be like, that it was gonna be pretty fucking grim and glum in here. And I walk in here on Friday night and the room was packed with people. And like, uh, I remember that I followed somebody from the parking lot up the street, through the parking lot, up to that back door, and there was a light there. And they went inside, and I started to come inside, and this wave of fear came over me. And, uh, like, uh, it was, I, I don't know what it was, a fear of the unknown. I didn't know these people. And I turned around to, like, uh, leave, to step down the steps, and I took a deep breath and turned around, and I walked into this room that night, and everything changed. So that's what it was like, and that's what happened. And what it was like now is that, like, I came to this thing and found out that Alcoholics Anonymous was the exact opposite of what I was thought it was going to be. That people were in there, and they were laughing and, like, uh, having a good time, which I wasn't. I was having a miserable time. So when it says, like, uh, if you want what we have, it's like I wanted that. I wanted to feel good again because I'll have to say a lot of my drinking and partying and drugging was a lot of fun. And that's one thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is you do not have to deny that you ever had any enjoyment of drugs or alcohol because why else would you have done it? But I was far past that enjoyment when I came in here that night. And, like, uh, it turns out that, like, uh, it was the first time I said out loud uh, in, in front of anybody that I was an alcoholic. I was sitting in that seat right over there where I usually sit. And they said, is there anybody here for the first meeting? And I held up my hand and said, would you give us your first name? And I said, my name is Jim. And then I said, and I'm an alcoholic. And that was my first spiritual experience. And I, I felt like this incredible weight had been lifted off of me to finally tell the truth, that that's exactly what I was. That I was somebody that, like, once I took a drink, uh, it, it was off to the races. I didn't have a choice after that first drink. That, that first drink produced in me a craving. And, like, it put me on the edge. A lot of times when I went to bars or to clubs, I would order two gin and tonics, and one was for me and one was for my wife who wasn't there. And I would take them back, and I'd drink both the gin and tonics because, like, if it put one gin and tonics, would put me on the edge. But like two, like uh, put me into that effect, and it, there was no stopping after that. You know, I, I had no control. And like the worst thing, like uh, my wife and I would sometimes go to visit people, and somebody would give me a beer, say, "You want a beer? Sure, let me have a beer." You know, and I drink the beer. And if they didn't like uh, offer me another one, I said, "Hey, got another one of those?" You know. And like if they didn't, a lot of times I'd just get up and go out and buy a six-pack and drink it myself. And I would certainly mark them off my social calendar if they're ever going to see them again. In the same way with like smoking dope. And so like uh, 
I was an alcoholic, you know. I've heard this phrase in here say, well, if I could drink like a normal drinker, I'd drink all the time, and that's kind of like the way I was, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and another phrase I read in the book, it's also a movie called The Lost Weekend, where the definition of an alcoholic is somebody who can take it or leave it, so he takes it, you know. And that was me. It's like it implies a choice that is not there. It's like once I take a drink, I don't have a choice. And that's why I could never stop drinking. But I needed something more than that. You know, it's like it talks about that in a vision for you is that I needed a replacement for the alcoholism. And uh, this was it. And uh, I loved it. It's like people told six stories in here and everybody laughed about them, you know. Uh, it's, it's like if you told those stories, if you went to the Qantas Club or the uh, uh, Lions Club and told the kind of stories we tell in here, they definitely wouldn't tell you to keep coming back. You know, they'd probably tell you to go to the Optimus Club. And like, but in here, they told me that. That's what I understood the first night I was in here. This woman that told her story was young enough to be my daughter. But when she told her story about how she drank, I thought, I drink like that, you know. And that's what the value of this speaker night was for me was that this woman told her story, and even though it was a different gender, a different age, or whatever, the way she drank was the same way I drank. And so I started coming to these meetings, you know, and like uh, the first night I, I, I was here, I got a copy of the book. And I took it home and read the first 165 pages. And like uh, the next night, I read all the stories. And like I remember reading it that first night after I'd been here. And I remember that story, uh, uh, that, that chapter that says, there is a solution. And like... Uh, I was happy to see that, you know, because that's what I was looking to, was a solution to my problem of drinking, and this was it. And that was my second step after I mentioned that I admitted that I was an alcoholic was, my second step was an intuitive feeling that this is it. I remember thinking that this is it, and I had a good feeling from that. And the third step, and I knew nothing about the steps like at that time, but the third step for me was that whatever these people are doing, I'm all in, I'll do it myself. And that's where it talks about letting go absolutely. I was willing to let go absolutely. So I did all these things. I got a sponsor. I found out somebody told me about a sponsor, so I got one. And I started working the steps. And like uh, there, when I started working the steps, there were like a couple in there that I didn't quite know about. That step five was like uh, I was going to have to do this inventory and tell the truth about myself, and then I was going to sit down with somebody else and tell them about it. And I didn't know about that. And when I got to nine... That was where, like, what an order I can't go through with it sort of popped into my mind because I thought there are people that, like, I never wanted to see again in my life. And, like, uh, and they were saying, like, well, maybe you have to see them. I remember the first thing when I saw that, I thought, like, surely that can't mean Rose Earhart. Because uh, Rose Earhart was my ex mother in law. And, like, uh, one of the few good things about my divorce is, like, uh, well, I'll never have to see Rose Earhart again in my fucking life. <laughs> that turned out to not be not entirely true. And like, what happened was when I got to step nine, uh, I put her at the head of the list, and I was going to write her an amends letter. And I had this crusty old sponsor guy. Uh, his name was Bill, and and. Uh, uh, he was kind of a cross between uh, Yosemite Sam and the Tasmanian Devil. And like, uh, uh, I, showed, I said, I'm going to do her a written amends. It's said, nah, I don't think so. I think you need to go see her face to face. And uh, <laughs> so like, uh, I did that. I went to visit my parents at Christmas, and, and they had moved to this little town called Winsboro. And like, uh, I drove uh, after Christmas to their house. And uh, 
Her husband had died by this time, and she was living by herself. And I called her up from a payphone at this uh, grocery store out in Winsboro and uh, told her, this is Jim, you know, can I come see you? And it was weird because she was this bold Mississippi Belle type woman, but like you know, she seemed like scared and her voice was shaking. And I later realized she probably thought I'd driven up there to kill her because that's the kind of relationship I had with her. And she told me I couldn't come out there, you know, said, no, you can't come out here. And I said, well, will you listen to this over the phone? And she said, okay. And so I made an amends to her and told her, you know, took my responsibility for these things that, like, I had done to, like, uh, her and her family. And, like, at the end of it, she said, well, I've heard you've gone to a couple of AA meetings, and just because you have doesn't mean we're going to forgive and forget, you know. And, like, I said, well, thank you, and thank you for listening to it. And I got the phone. And after I got off the phone, it was one of the first natural highs I ever had in my life. I felt like I was floating. And I realized I never had natural highs because I always had unnatural ones. You can't have a natural high if you're always fucked up on drugs or alcohol. (laughs) And I've had them since. I didn't believe in them before I came in here, but I believe in them now. I also believe that you don't even have to believe in God to have God things happen to you in AA. Uh, Because I'm an atheist, you know, and I have a higher power that I choose to call God. It's just not a theistic God. And there's other people in here. And uh, there's a guy, Bill, that comes here at the 530 and everything. And uh, he's an atheist, too. He kind of makes my atheism look like Billy Graham or something, you know. But he's been sober for 42 years, and he helps people. He's very nice to people in here. And, like, he gives people rides, and he talks to people after meetings. And he's a very accomplished person. He's a... A very good writer. He's like published novels and like uh, short stories, and uh, but he always takes times out to help people in Alcoholics Anonymous and not full of himself. And that's what I found out is that what is the spiritual message of Alcoholics Anonymous is like getting outside yourself. That like I was in the bondage of self. And when I first came in here, I had my version of like the third step prayer. And that was like, release me from the bondage of self and uh, help me be a better father to my son, a better son to my parents, and help me be of use to other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was my third step prayer. And it wasn't like, you know, there was something out there listening to it or whatever. It was me saying this to say, this is what I want, and hearing myself saying that I wanted this. So I started coming to these meetings, and I've been coming ever since. I know that like when I first came here at the 8 o'clock, that was the biggest meeting here, and there would be people sitting on the floor. And we had three pot, uh, coffee pots going, actually four going the whole time. And I used to work a coffee bar in there. Uh, you had somebody that would work the whole time pouring coffee and making coffee because it was nonstop. And i get jacked up on about six cups of coffee. <laughs> and like I remember one time looking out that window, and, and looking at everybody in here, they were so much younger than I was because when I came in here, I was 49 years old, two months from turning 50 the first night I came in here. And I remember thinking, like, these people are all 19 years old, and they got 20 years of sobriety. It's like, uh, I'll never get 20 years of sobriety. But I did. I've got 22 now. And I remember sitting there and thinking that. And this is another God thing. There was this guy named Bill Youngblood that came here that, like, uh, had this... Terminex, like, uh, uh, it was like an a insect thing, a killing insect thing. And, and like, uh, uh, he was like, at that time, he was like uh, the head of Austin politics. He didn't have any office, but he, like, like, determined if you wanted to get elected to office, you had to run it by Bill. And, like, he dressed up as a cowboy, in a white cowboy shirt and a hat. 
And I was in there feeling discouraged that I wasn't going to like get 20 years. And he walked through the kitchen and he looked at me and he said, uh, and, and pointed at the, uh, this clock we had in there. And he said, I want to tell you one thing. He said, like, you and I have the same amount of sobriety, and that's 24 hours if we make it till midnight. And it's almost like he'd read my mind. And I'll never forget that. He was one of the nicest people I ever met in my life. I've met some of the uh, nicest people in here. I've met a lot of crazy people in here, you know. And the best thing about it is we're not all crazy on the same day because uh, I, I can be as crazy as the next motherfucker any given day, you know. <laughs> But, like, the thing is, I can come in here and kind of get calmed down when I come in here. It's like I stay up late, and I get up late. And, like, uh, I come over here and kind of wake up at the noon meeting every day. And this is my morning meditation. It's coming in here at, like, uh, noon and waking, drinking a cup of coffee and, like, uh, you know, uh, like listening to other people. That's part of getting out of myself is... I tell my story, you know, and like, uh, but I listen to other people's stories too. And what I realize is no matter where we come from, gender, race, like uh, sexual preference, all these things like, like are nothing compared to like what we have in common. That's why we don't talk about politics in here. We don't talk about particular religions or non-religions or whatever. But our common problem that we have with alcoholism, and I realize that my common problem it's common. You know, there's this common variety, garden variety drunk, and that's what I am, you know, is, and that's what I was, that, that I was not special. And I learned that in here. And I also learned about gratitude because being a spoiled only child, I had no idea what that really meant until I came in here. It's, it's like uh, you get old, you kind of got to have gratitude because, like, uh, things start, like, not working anymore. And rather than like concentrating on what's not working, I look at what is still working. And one of them is that I can still like manage to get dressed and get in my car, drive over here and come to an AA meeting and possibly being of service to others because that's what it's all about is getting outside myself. And, you know, it, it's like a, I, I, I learned so much in here that like I never could get it in the church and some people get it in the church, but I had to come in here to like begin to understand it. Plus, I've seen some pretty wild stuff happen here. It's like, uh, I remember one time somebody got mad at it. Sometimes people will get angry at AA, and like a Boulder group in particular, and they'll take it out. Like one time it came in the door, and somebody had like uh, knocked out the glass in that, that window there and stuck the garden hose in there and turned the water on all night. So there was like about a foot of water in there. We walked in and like, uh, uh, there were a lot of suspects. It could have been a lot of people. We, we never figured out exactly who did it, you know, but the whole point of it was is we needed new carpet anyway. So like, uh, it was an excuse to buy new carpet. I remember one time somebody stole the steps and traditions. When I came here, we had these uh, beautiful, they were done with calligraphy. Somebody had like hand written all the steps out and like, and they were in these golden frames and we came in, they were missing one time. Everybody thought somebody had taken them home to like clean them up or, you know, like, like reframe them or whatever. And they just didn't show back up. And we realized that somebody for some bizarre reason was pissed off and they stole them. And I was really pissed about it. I thought, God damn, man, those were beautiful and everything. And then, like, like uh, Bob Flynn went out and bought new ones. These that are up here, and a guy named Paul, like, he framed them. And what I realized is I sit over there, and I couldn't read the goddamn calligraphy ones because they had all faded, but I can read these real well. So it turned out 
to be another thing that, that like, uh, it turned out to be for the good that somebody stole the, the uh, steps and traditions out of here. And I come here because I don't want to miss anything. I was here one time that, like, uh, uh, I was sitting over there, and there's a guy sitting right there that, like, was real shaky during the meeting. And the place was packed. It was, like, on a Friday, and it was a beginner's meeting. And, like, they asked if anybody wanted a desire chip. And he got up, and he was, like, real shaky, and everybody was applauding and cheering that he got up. And he walked over here, and, and like, the, the chair gave him the uh, desire chip. And, like, uh, he walked over around here and looked at us and said, you people are full of shit and threw the desire chip into the trash can and stormed out the door. <laughs> and everybody laughed and applauded, you know. Because he knew that was kind of partially true. We knew that. that like, we are kind of full of shit, you know. And then that's part of the thing is not taking yourself too seriously. And uh, I learned that in here, too. And I've had a great time. It's been a good, great ride. I know that there's this quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald saying there are no second acts in American lives. I've had three acts. And that was like uh, growing up before alcohol, my alcoholic period, and what it's like now. It's been the last third of my life that like uh, I've been in this thing, and I've had a hell of a time. And I'm very grateful for it. So that's my story. That's Thanks. Awesome.